Hi, it's Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is The Jackpod, where On Point news analyst Jack Beatty helps us connect history, literature, and politics in a way that brings unique clarity to the world we live in now. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Meghna. Here we are at lucky episode number 13, I'm going to call it. What's the headline, Jack? It sucks. <laughs> Not... That doesn't really narrow it down. So many things could could, could fall under that category. <laughs> what is it that sucks, Jack? Uh, Obamacare. That is, according to uh, Donald Trump last week in a posting on Truth Social, and he proposes to try to repeal it uh, if elected president. He gifted with that uh, the Biden campaign with a, a sterling prize, because something like 40 million Americans are involved one way or another in Obamacare and uh, scores more millions uh, benefit from it because of the bargain in it between, uh, you know, on, on pre-existing conditions. The insurance companies can't throw you off for pre-existing conditions. That's part of the deal they made in return for getting all these mm. customers under Obamacare. So that was a huge political gaffe. And people might say, well, that was just uh, just one phrase that he used. Uh, unfortunately, that is typical of Trump. And beyond that, it's typical of what uh, Trump of a tendency that Trump has intensified in American politics. Uh-huh. A tendency uh, that was, let, to, let me just jump here for a second, a tendency yeah, that was sure. already there, which I know you're going to talk about for a second, but to just follow up on uh, the gaffe, as you described it, it, it's quite a huge one, not that Donald Trump cares, because even the Republican Party as a whole has a long turned their back away from the whole repeal and replace attempts that they had because it was so wildly unsuccessful. I heard that after Trump put out that tweet, a lot of members of the GOP were like, please don't talk about Obamacare anymore. But as you said, uh, it's exacerbated a tendency that was already there. So meaning what, Jack? Well, the tendency toward uh, tribal politics, toward Pavlovian politics, red meat politics, and the abandonment of any effort to reason, to persuade, to convince. It's that dimension of politics that, that, uh, that, that Trump, and the, the absence of that, that Trump is the, is, is the sort of uh, you know, grotesque embodiment. And to the, to the objection that, well, you know, it's only a tweet and so on. Here is uh, Christine Todd Whitman, former uh, Republican governor of New Jersey and Bush cabinet member, writing last week in the Washington Post in an article, by the way, titled, Trump Dictatorship is Inevitable. Mm. She writes, I don't think there's a Republican Party. There is a cult around Donald Trump. They didn't adopt a platform in 220, which means that whatever Donald Trump tells us we should stand for today, that's what we'll stand for. So no ideas, no platform, no argument, just whatever pops into his head. Peter Drucker, who is a young, as a young journalist in Germany, noticed this with, <laughs> with the National Socialists. They would say, uh, uh, we don't want low bread prices. We don't want high bread prices. We want National Socialist mm. bread prices. He called that the abracadabra of fascism, the, the substitution of sloganeering and and magical uh, incantation for reasoning. 
Uh, and similarly, the Republicans are, they're willing to take Donald Trump's bread prices, whatever he says it today, they are today. And that just is such a flagrant abandonment of mind and reason and evidence and so on that it is, uh, it's, it, 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 well, it's irrationality is patent. Mm. You know, Jack, um, my your point about Trump and his use of language, language, and not just the, his coarsening of American political discourse, but his abuse of it is well taken. I mean, he's a unique and uniquely dangerous, dangerous figure right now in American politics. But this um, move away from persuasion and towards, you know, demand or declaration instead, the loss of the art of argument in American politics, you know, you said it's been worsening uh, in the in the Trump era, but it had existed before. I mean, are there other examples and perhaps not even just strictly Republican examples that come to mind? In, indeed. Two, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Let's talk about Sanders. Uh, I once stood for 55 minutes listening to a Bernie Sanders speech at Lebanon High School. This is when he was running for president in uh, the primaries of 2016. Uh, the speech was... Uh, a remarkable uh, effusion. Uh, it was like American exceptionalism in reverse, <laughs> or the inverse of American. All the bad things about America, and all the good things about Papua New Guinea, which has daycare, and Denmark, which has this, and somebody else, but America doesn't have any of it. And he listed all of these things. And it was like a journalist giving all these problems. There was no effort to persuade anyone that, well, maybe we should have uh, national medical leave, maybe we should have, uh, you know, socialized insurance, but, but what are the arguments for it? What are the arguments against it? None of that. He just gave a list. It was like listening to someone on MSNBC. I'm not responsible for convincing you. I'm just giving you all the reasons you know are bad. And so he had, what he did really, and this is emblematic, he violated what John Stuart Mill called the first, what should be the first principle of, of public disputation in democracies. Uh, Mill wrote, Lord, that the, that, the, that the disputant's prayer should be, Lord, enlighten thou our enemies, strengthen their arguments. He writes, if opponents of important truths do not exist, it's indispensable to imagine them and supply them with the strongest arguments which the most skillful devil's advocate can conjure up. He goes on, not the violent conflict between part of the truth, but the quiet suppression of half of it is the formidable evil. There is always hope when people are forced to listen to both sides. It is when they attend only to one that errors harden into prejudices and truth itself ceases to have the effect of truth by being exaggerated into falsehood. Mill warns of the deep slumber of decided opinion. Well, Bernie Sanders, it seems to me, shows that uh, you, it, unless you went in agreeing with him, you wouldn't. You wouldn't come out agreeing with uh -huh. him. There was no no effort to persuade at all, and in and, and replacing it a highly moralistic list of all the problems in America. Oh my gosh, Jack! 
<laughs> that mill quote makes me hag- hang my head in shame because I was going to respond to your uh, pointing at Bernie Sanders with a very uh, rudimentary question, <laughs> which was going to be, well, maybe Sanders just thinks, uh, you know, his list of American weaknesses right now is so obvious that it doesn't even, you know, necessitate uh, trying to persuade anyone who listens to him. I mean, I'm going to guess that even Donald Trump believes that when he just tweets out whatever he tweets out. Uh, the idea that uh, there should even be the time of day should be given to anyone who might think differently is yes. is that just gone now? I. I think it is. I mean, it's because, as 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 Mill says, people have not imagined that opponent who's intelligent, who has objections, whose objections must be listened to. Uh, you don't have to agree with them, but there are against everything that Bernie wanted to do. There's an argument. He could have said, now opponents of daycare say, what about the woman at home who wants to stay with her family? Why should she pay in taxes to support daycare for women who go to work? Well, that's an argument. He didn't say that. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's, it's not respecting people's as reasoning people. It's like, you know, respond Pavlovianly to this list of troubles. Why is this happening, Jack? <laughs> well, uh, you know, one reason is, uh, and this is a dolorous fact, uh, some estimates are there are that the percentage of truly persuadable voters, that is voters who switch from one party to the other in uh, presidential elections, it, 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 it may be as low as 7 or 10 percent of the electorate. Uh, the ten percent is what switched from two twelve to two sixteen. Uh, so, and that's a significant group. You know, ten percent of the electorate, ten million you know voters. But here's the problem: if a candidate tries to persuade them of the rightness of his or her views, he's got to go back to first principles. These people are are not amenable to Pavlovian politics. They want to hear reasons. Well, if the candidate starts to give reasons, he weakens the effect of his base appeal. Mm. And any consultant will tell him, no, 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 elections today are not about persuasion. They are about mobilization. You've got to get your people out. And any effort to dilute that with reaching out to people who don't agree with you uh, is it, it, it's folly. And they would say further, they would point further to the effect of advertising, going at such people, advertising, aiming to convince. According to one study, its effect on uh, voters who aren't persuaded is zero. <laughs> so uh, persuasion is, the political consultant said, forget about it. And uh, and 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 it's you know it, it's sort of what closed yesterday. <laughs> okay, Jack. A couple quick follow ups to this because it's really uh, interesting and my mind's churning a bit. Are persuadable voters the same thing as independent voters or not? They could be. Okay. Uh, they are thought to be, um, or they are leaners. You know, uh-huh. leaners Democratic, leaners Republican. The the trouble is. They don't get heard from in primaries, these mm. independent or leaning voters. Something like 40 percent 
of American independence a barred from voting in, in many state primaries, which means only about 20% of each party shows up for the primary. So you get, you know, you get Donald Trump. He's the, <laughs> you get a, 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 someone who can really excite the base. And that's, you know, if, if you want to win, if you want to be nominated, you have to cater uh, to, that, yeah. to that group. Now, Joe Biden didn't do that. Notably, in the last campaign, Bernie Sanders was trying to do it, go to the base. Elizabeth Warren was trying to do it. But, but Biden was able to uh, essentially rely on the pragmatism and common sense of African-American voters to see him through the ideological wars of the left on the Democratic Party. I mean, he was saved by uh, African-American voters in mm. South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're talking about the complete, almost complete lack of the belief in persuasion in uh, 21st century politics right now, Jack. But I mean, where would you point to, or what examples were would you point to as having been different? Well, here's one uh, in 1992. A very odd man, Ross Perot ran as an independent for president, and he did two half-hour ads that political consultant said, oh, my God, I can't believe this. He, he sat at a desk and, and for half an hour went through charts, charts of debt and deficit, charts of trade, charts of, of the effect on interest rates of these things. Each chart was an objective source. <laughs> so it wasn't rhetoric. It, it was evidence. Now, people said, oh, my God, no one's going to listen to this. Well, 19. 15 million people listened to it and voted for him. And more particularly, he changed the whole basis of Bill Clinton's administration. Bill Clinton listened to him. According to Paul Begala, who was Clinton's chief, one of his chief campaign consultants, uh, the whole view that uh, the people had about, you know, what uh, you know, Robert Reich and other people were saying stimulate and, you know, put people first and the Keynesian approach. Uh-uh. Bill Clinton put deficits first, put the debt first because he heard those 19 million people. Uh, Ross Perot convinced Bill Clinton. Wow. Uh, the legacy of that, though, people are still living with. But here's actually a little clip of exactly what you're talking about. So this is Perot in 1992 and a moment from one of those ads. Okay, here's another headache. It's like the guy that went into the hospital, thought he had a sore arm, found out he had gangrene. But here we are. We're tough people. We can handle it. Look right here at the red. 70% of that $4 trillion debt is due and payable in the next five years. Folks in Washington financed long-term problems, short-term, to keep the interest rates down. That's suicide in business. That's suicide in your personal life. That's suicide in your government. Perot really sort of explained uh, the epistemological basis of what he was doing, which is, hey, folks, this is the truth. <laughs> yeah. And there was no rhetoric. There was no effort. There was no, he just was showing what the facts were. He says, we're big people. We can take that. And a lot of people took it. Bill Clinton took it. 
And, uh, you know, and, and, and of course he was gifted. He could say that the deficit, he says, like a crazy aunt you keep in the basement. The, the neighbors <laughs> keep yelling, you know, and you just ignore it. <laughs> oh, wow. If, for all those people who weren't there when it happened, YouTube him. Uh, it's Jack's exactly right. If only Clinton had listened to Perot about NAFTA, too, but that's probably for another uh, podcast in the future. Now, I understand, Jack, that there's another example that you want to point to, and it happens to be something that in my memory uh, was uh, extremely partisan, very contentious, and it doesn't really come to mind when we're talking about the you know persuasion in American politics, and that is the creation of Obamacare. So why? Well, because uh, President Obama had several meetings with Republicans trying to make the case for his, uh, his position and listening to listen to their counterarguments. He was, he was essentially inviting, he was, he was trying to pass the, the mill test, not by imagining uh, opponents, but by speaking to them and saying, what are your counterarguments? And in this particular episode, it was a, I think, a three and a half hour meeting he mm -hmm. had covered by C-SPAN in which he tried to meet Republican objectives, uh, objections to Obamacare and to say, isn't this something we all agree on? We don't agree on X, but don't we agree on Y? Let's, let's tailor the bill to say Y. We'll hear him being reasonable and trying to reason and also being vexed at, at, uh, at stubbing his intellectual toe on Republican uh, intransigence. Okay, so Jack, this is one of those moments. Here's President Barack Obama at one of those healthcare summits that he convened at the White House. And you're going to hear just a quick part of his opening remarks from early in 2010. I'd like to make sure that this discussion is actually a discussion and not just us trading talking points. Um, I hope that... Uh, this isn't political fear, where we're just playing to the cameras and criticizing each other, uh, but instead are actually trying to solve the problem. That's what the American people are looking for. I hear what you're saying, Jack. Uh, Obama, they're opening the discussion to, uh, to a debate, productive debate, which he says will hopefully lead to a solution uh, to the problem of American health care. Uh, and here's another moment that you wanted us to play, Senator John McCain, now the late Senator John McCain, uh, who understandably had maybe was still a little smarting a little bit from having lost to Obama in the previous presidential election. But there was a moment where um, he sort of good naturedly took the president to task, saying that uh, uh, Obama was missing one of the real problems with the uh, entire effort around Obamacare. Now, both of us during the campaign promised change in Washington. In fact, eight times you said that negotiations on health care reform would be conducted with the C-SPAN cameras. I'm glad more than a year later that they are here. Unfortunately, this product was not produced in that fashion. So, let me just make this point, John, because we're not campaigning anymore. The election's over. Um, I, I, the, I'm reminded uh, no, of that every day. Uh, well, I, yeah. Um, so the uh, we can spend the remainder of the time with our respective talking points going back and forth. We were supposed to be talking about insurance. Um, you know, obviously, I'm sure that the 
Harry Reid and Chris Dodd and uh, others who went through an exhaustive process through the, both the House and the Senate with the most hearings, uh, the most debates on the floor, uh, the longest markup in 22 years on each and every one of these bills would ha have a response for you. My concern is, is that if we do that, then we're essentially back on Fox News or MSNBC on the split screen just arguing back and forth. So my, my hope would be that we can just focus on the issues of how we actually get a bill done. Um, and this would probably be a good time to turn it over to Secretary Sebelius. Who well, could I just say, Mr. President, the American people care about what we did and well, how we did it. Uh, well, they and I think we ought, and they it's a subject that I they, think they, they, we should discuss. They, they, thank they, you. they absolutely do uh, care about it, John. And I think that uh, the way you characterized it, obviously, would get some strong objections from the other side. We can have a debate about process, or we can have a debate about how we're actually going to help the American people at this point. Now, Jack, we played an extended clip of that because it's important to hear how the two of them are interacting, right? And uh, I have to say, I hear Senator McCain raising quite an important point because Obama had promised the process was going to be transparent. Um, but it sounds to me like Obama, though gracious in that moment, also just doesn't want to talk about it and really wants to just move on. But your thoughts? Yes, and, and he just doesn't like the thing getting political in the bad sense right there. The, the subject was supposed to be insurance. In fact, he then turns to his secretary of home, uh, HHS, uh, who, uh, Kathleen Sebelius, and says, now you were a former insurance commissioner. Tell us about, in other words, he's talking about technical matters. And John McCain comes out with this process argument. And, you know, you didn't have enough of these open hearings. And, and by the way, this passed at cr on cr Christmas Eve, you, pa you know, the two o'clock in the morning, the bill passed and process. And Obama wants to get to substance. I think that experience, well, you have something to contribute about, about what Obama thought about that experience. Oh, yeah, actually, Jack, thank you for reminding me, because when you and I had been discussing this before, uh, I think what I took away from that is in Obama's subsequent uh, memoir, one of them that he wrote, uh, he has passages in that memoir where he says, you know, look, the public discourse outside of the, the those wash, those White House uh, summits that he had organized, the public discourse was very rancorous, right? People, uh, Republican Party was absolutely opposed to every aspect of Obamacare. There's nothing that they could do to convince the GOP otherwise. But Obama in his memoir says, well, you know, behind the scenes when he had one-on-one -on -one meetings with uh, GOP senators, several of them said, Actually, there's a lot in this bill that we that our constituents want and that we would want to give them, but we can't because if we do, we will never get reelected. Well, there it is, <laughs> the base. <laughs> mm, right. I think what the, that story uh, makes me think of is coming back to your original point about the complete absence of persuasive politics in this country now that uh, – because of things like having to cater to the base, the rest of America is denied the opportunity to have a, a thoughtful airing, right, of various points of views or policies. We're denied the opportunity to hear those persuasive arguments. But Jack, look, uh, maybe those of us who follow politics closely really care about this, but why does it matter to the country as a whole? It weakens democracy. There's a strong argument 
that legitimacy in democracy, you know, I'm going to accept what the law as written because they had, you know, I, in other words, it, it replaces force. You don't, you don't force people into, they accept that the system is legitimate. Well, to do that, you have to hear from all sides. People, their, their arguments don't have to be accepted, but they have to be heard and people have to be aware that they're heard. But of course, that isn't, that can't happen in a base-driven uh, politics. And the result is that things like uh, the climate change legislation or Obamacare, which are passed only by one party, are vulnerable to the next party pulling them, you know, repealing them. And more than that, it feels to half the country as if there's been a kind of you know, imposition on them. They weren't consulted about this. They don't feel their views were heard. And the result is a, a sense that democracy itself, the procedures of it, are illegitimate. Mm. Just a last thought, Jack. When I hear you say that, it makes me think about even deeper currents in, in the United States because persuasion, the one thing it requires is respect. Respect of the yes. other, right? Because mm -hmm. when you're saying I'm going to persuade you, it means that you acknowledge that that person doesn't necessarily have your point of view, but you respect them uh, equally because, because that's what it's required to say. Well, you may not believe me, but here's my say, and I'd like to hear you as well. When we don't have that common respect, the question, you know, people are like, well, why should I even try to persuade them? They're never going to listen, and I don't believe them anyway. So that trickles down from our national politics to our state politics to just, I think, how how we treat each other. So, hey, with that in mind, Jack's uh, question about uh, the lack of uh, respectful persuasion in American politics, this is my time to tell folks to run, don't walk to wherever your app store is. So I guess that means run, don't walk to pick up your phone. Get the on-point Vox Pop app if you already don't have it because we're going we're gonna to ask you this question this week. Do you also think that uh, the art of persuasion uh, is gone or the, the use for persuasion is gone in American politics? And, and what are the consequences of that? And I'm also curious to, every, to, to you listening right now, are you genuinely open to persuasion, to political persuasion? Mm -hmm. Because, uh, look, <laughs> we're talking about hundreds of millions of people who aren't actually open to persu political persuasion, which is why the, the catering to the base happens. So I, I'd love people to be honest with us and say if they are, or what would it take? What kind of political debate would it take for you to be persuaded from either your political point of view or to some other common ground? Those are the questions for this week's Jackpot. So again, go get the On Point Vox Pop app and uh, send us your responses. And as I always say every week, Jack, we listen to all of them. And it's the number of responses keeps growing and growing and growing. So when we come back, we'll listen to what people had to say about your exploration of the uncertainty of existence in the United States. So that's just in a moment. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
and listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash OnPoint. That's Indeed.com slash OnPoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. Well, we're back with Jack Beatty. And Jack, last week you talked about the uncertainty of existence or the government's failure to ensure life and the quality of life in this country. And listeners responded from all over the country, Jack, and this time even internationally. Here's just a couple to start off with. I am feeling so full of emotion. If you just go to the grocery store and look at the options available and the prices of uh, food, a leading cause of death is from overindulgence, and it's an absolute crisis right now. I was surprised that drug overdose was not discussed as one of the things that has affected life expectancy. It certainly has had a huge impact in the area where I live. Lots of things that take the shine off any life expectancy if living that life is not as fulfilling as we would like it to be, despite that rise in income that you mentioned. If people who don't have college degrees are dying at a faster rate than those with college degrees, maybe they need to get educated themselves, be able to go to trade schools and get some kind of education that will enable them to earn a living and be content with their life. Living in Germany, uh, I would say that the uncertainty of existence here is certainly less pronounced. And in my experience, the quality of life is uh, significantly higher uh, in Germany. Yet we see the surge in Germany in populism and fascistic tendencies. How to explain this? Okay, so that was at the beginning. Jessica from Dunedin, Florida, Linda from Concord, Vermont, Richard in New York, and Patrick from Dusseldorf, Germany. Just a couple of the many responses we got. Uh, Jack, there were three or so more listeners that we want to dig into more deeply, what they talked about. Now, you join us every week for the Jackpod from Hanover, New Hampshire. So Tom sent us a Vox Pop asking about, well, what about New Hampshire? New Hampshire has a low cigarette tax, and it is the only state left with no seatbelt law for adults. Yeah, there's lots of other things New Hampshire doesn't regulate that many other states do. But New Hampshire is pretty good for life expectancy. And I think the difference is New Hampshire has very good education. It has an active culture, lots of outdoor activities. Uh, maybe the diet's a little better than for the culture in the Southeast. So with uh, culture and education, does the government policy or lack thereof not matter as much? So, Jack, should uh, New Hampshire change its motto to live free and 
maybe not die too young? <laughs> well, it, it, he makes a very good case, Tom does. You know, when you look at it, though, what, what looms out is New Hampshire's life expectancy here is 79 years. In Kentucky, 73 years. Uh, why? Well, yes, there's a culture of outdoors, getting out, but, but you have to look at beneath that. New Hampshire is number four in median income, $88,000 a year. Uh, Mississippi is somewhere around 40,000. Um, Kentucky, maybe 50,000 something. Uh, uh, and New Hampshire is 91% white. And white, white means advantaged. Just in the historical terms, it is, you're better off on average being a white person in America. Mm, okay. Well, let's move now to Iowa, uh, Des Moines in particular, because that's where Lisa is. And she wanted you to know that she thinks Republicans have been very successful in the past 40 years about changing Americans' minds regarding the purpose of government. I don't think a lot of Americans believe that government has a fundamental responsibility to keep people alive. People's view and role of government is not one to support, but to oppress. And that runs counter to believing government should be helping you or keeping you alive or paying to keep other people alive. Okay, Jack, what do you think? Well, I think that's sobering and correct. I mean, and that's a turn in American politics. Essentially, the turn against the New Deal and the philosophy of the New Deal. What was the philosophy of that? Franklin Roosevelt said, security. He said, I had a life where I could get educated, where I had good health care, where I could travel, and I had leisure to learn things. I want what I had. I want everyone to have what I had, that kind of security. That's the vision of the New Deal. Ronald Reagan said, far from that, he said, government is not the solution. Government is the problem. And Bill Clinton, to his discredit, I think, uh, in 1996, famously, in election year, he said the era of big government is over, as if it had ever started. <laughs> so, uh, yes, there's been an awful uh, turn against government. And uh, it, Joe Biden, I think, hoped to turn that around. And in some ways he has in terms of fiscal policy. He just hasn't convinced people on the on the upside, that government can play a big role. Mm, okay, so we've got a counterpoint, though, from Michigan. This is Leslie, and she left us a message from the north of Detroit. And she says she's not a fan or wasn't a fan of the former Republican governor, Rick Snyder, but as a nurse practitioner, she saw the direct impact of his decision to expand Medicaid. Prior to the expansion of Michigan Medicaid, I had a real difficulty getting even the most basic medications for clients. Our clients are low-income clients or have no income, so it was difficult for us to obtain medications for them. Um, since the expansion of Michigan Medicaid, I am able to get all the medications, really, for my clients that they need. Okay, Jack, your thoughts? You know, I think, I think that's a tremendously important uh, point. You know, there was a... A, a study in the Lancet in 2021 about the expansion of Medicaid, which was a central part of, uh, of Obamacare. Here's what they found. We found that Medicaid expansion exerts an influence on mortality rates 
uh, and the and the magnitude of the benefit it 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 conveys is correlated with the magnitude of the expansion. So here's an example of government keeping people alive, government maintaining, mitigating the uncertainty of existence right there through expansion of uh, of Medicaid. Unfortunately, you know, there are still 10 states that uh, have not accepted the Medicaid expansion. And Trump's statement of last week, which we began with, it sucks about Obamacare, that makes it all the more likely that these Republican governors and legislators in these 10 states with 2 million people who could be covered by insurance and whom they won't cover, makes it all the more likely that they will continue to keep these people out in the, as it were, medical cold. Mm. Well, Jack, thank you as always. I honestly look forward to Fridays. I already did. <laughs> I'm a human, right? Everyone else, we look forward to Fridays, but now I look forward <laughs> to, to them even more because of the drop of the jackpot. So it's great to talk to you, Jack. Thanks so much. Thank you, Megna. All right, I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is the On Point podcast feed, but you've been listening to our special Friday jackpot. Thanks a lot.